All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. May the 3rd, 2019 marks 40 years since Margaret Thatcher became the UK's first female Prime Minister. She remains one of the most divisive figures in British political history. She's a role model in a big way. Well, let's put it this way, I don't wish anybody dead, but I'm glad she's gone. But how should we remember her? We spoke to 22 women, some of whom knew her, most of whom spent their formative years in Thatcher's Britain. She was talked about in my household more than any other figure, even members of our family. She was like the Wicked Witch of the West. That's how she was painted to us as children. We asked them what they remember about the Iron Lady. We were losing jobs left, right and centre. She took tea with Pinochet. I couldn't understand how she still kept winning elections. She always had that weird helmet hair and she wore those weird blue suits that I thought, I don't know what shop you get those from, but they're not on sale. And about what they think her legacy is. For the country, for communities and for individual households across the UK. Ideologies are often dangerous. The 1980s didn't actually stop until 1997. And while she's certainly become a benchmark for how women in power are judged. A gay man turned to me and said, well, you were the Margaret Thatcher of gay politics. And everybody behind him took one pace backwards. Theresa May can be Theresa May because Thatcher was Thatcher. What legacy has she left women in this country? Here is a woman who's got to the top and she's not brought one woman with her. I'm guessing that Mrs Thatcher at some point went through the menopause. She was no sister to us, but I feel I can be a sister to her. What should we remember about that bloody woman?
There may be an adjective between that and woman. Only no one will tell me what it is. We're back with the second episode of our two-part documentary exploring Margaret Thatcher's legacy, this time focusing on what she did for, or indeed to, country, society and state. Let's go to the woman herself for her thoughts on society. In an interview with Women's Own in 1987, Margaret Thatcher said, There is no such thing as society. There are individual men and women and there are families. And no governments can do anything except through people. And people must look to themselves first. It is our duty to look after ourselves and then also to look after our neighbours. Her meaning, Thatcher claimed in her 1993 autobiography, was that society was not an abstraction, separate from the men and women who composed it, but a living structure of individuals, families, neighbours and voluntary associations. Yeah? Tell that to the regions. Crime is crime is crime. It is not political, it is crime. One of the parts of the country where Thatcher's legacy remains most controversial is Northern Ireland. Siobhan Fenton is a journalist, born and based in Belfast, specialising in writing about gender, politics and Northern Ireland, and the author of the book The Good Friday Agreement. Thatcher became very well known for having an extremely hardline approach to Irish republicanism and the IRA, in particular the hunger strike. The 1981 hunger strike was the culmination of a crisis that had begun before Thatcher came to power, when the Labour government ended special category status for prisoners convicted of a crime related to the Troubles. This had meant they were not required to do prison work or wear a uniform and could associate freely with other paramilitary prisoners. Two protests designed to win back political status were underway by the time Thatcher became Prime Minister. The blanket protests, in which prisoners refused to wear uniforms, and the dirty protests, where prisoners smeared excrement on the walls of their cells. As conditions in the Mays prison deteriorated and Thatcher stood firm, the prisoners adopted a new tactic. After an aborted hunger strike in 1980, in 81 they started again. Ten men died during the seven-month crisis, one of whom, its leader Bobby Sands, was elected MP for Fermanagh and South Tyrone before his death. The hunger strike made headlines around the world and led to an explosion of violence on the streets of Northern Ireland. Claire Allen is an author and former journalist who grew up in the predominantly Catholic city of Derry in the 1980s. It's one of my earliest memories of the troubles, I suppose, was Patsy O'Hara was the hunger striker from Derry. He died, I think it was after about 60 days, and his funeral and how big it was, but that sense of this country could blow up. I was five years old and I remember that feeling of this is really dangerous and I'm actually a wee bit scared. And you know, sort of being hurried away from, God, the funeral's coming through here. We can't be in this part of town. We have to be away. I see it differently now to then because, of course, my dad was in the Air Force and we are Irish Catholics, so it was a bit fucked. That was Joe Caulfield a comedian with Northern Irish parents. She was living in London when Thatcher was in power. I just remember my parents watching the news and always going, oh God, the cinema's gone. Because they met at Queen's University in Belfast. That was their young years were in Belfast and just constantly watching things getting blown up. In the town my mum came from, Straban, completely ruined. And also that had been a, a very prosperous mill town so that was the troubles and the fact that there was no mill anymore. Thatcher's defiant attitude to the IRA may have been personal as well as political. 
1979, a few months before her election, her mentor Airy Neve was killed by a car bomb at the Houses of Parliament. Irish Republican paramilitary group the INLA claimed responsibility. Thatcher herself became the target of an assassination attempt at the 1984 Conservative Party conference when an IRA bomb exploded at the Grand Hotel in Brighton, killing five people and injuring 31. In 1990, MP Ian Gow, who had once been Thatcher's parliamentary private secretary, was killed by a car bomb at his home. It was a political climate succinctly summed up by Edwina Curry here. We expected violence. We expected to have to be on our guard. We expected atrocities. They came up all the time. Here's Siobhan with more on what may have driven Thatcher's policies in Northern Ireland. It's worth bearing in mind, I suppose, in, in the context of, of Margaret Thatcher, if she did have a very hard line towards Northern Ireland, it's perhaps kind of easier to understand when you think about it, was the, the personal psychology if she had been personally traumatised and suffered so much, maybe explains why she had such a kind of extreme approach, maybe. Margaret Thatcher was this evil figure. She was like the Wicked Witch of the West. That's how she was painted to us as children. And then the more I have an understanding of her politics... I can see why she was so hardline, but I don't think it was the right thing to do. That was Claire Allen on the feeling in Derry when she was a child. Here she is on whether Thatcher's attitude exacerbated the situation. I know it was a really difficult time. The troubles were at their worst and their highest. But a lot of people felt here that she didn't even, I suppose she didn't want to try to work to find a resolution, that she sort of stymied that resolution at, at every step and made things worse. The troubles escalated maybe further than they should have done, and particularly, you know, like the hunger strikers. People have very long memories when it comes to that, and whether I personally agree with their politics or not, for a nation or a a community to watch their own die as a result of political protest when it felt like they were getting no interaction with Thatcher's government at the time was very, very hard. It felt like it was like, you know, put the wee Northern Irish people in their place. She was so intransigent. She was so unable to see. I mean, there was genuine grievances for Catholics. I mean, that's why my parents left. I don't think Margaret Thatcher understood Northern Ireland. I think it was an insight fairness to her. I think very few British prime ministers ever, ever have understood um, Northern Ireland. So I don't, I don't think she was necessarily any any worse than any of her kind of predecessors or, or people who followed her. But I think perhaps one of her biggest flaws was maybe misunderstanding um, the psychology of, of republicanism. And I think a lot of historians would kind of think, now looking back, that she, she may have, for her extremely hardline approach to republicanism, prolonged the troubles in, in some aspects by becoming such a vehement kind of hate figure for some people. And that the IRA was kind of able to use that as a, as a recruitment drive by sort of depicting her as very cruel and intransigent. So I think that was perhaps one of the big misunderstandings that characterised her, her time in office was perhaps not understanding the, the psychology of, of how some of her policies played out here in Northern Ireland. That was Siobhan, who's not alone in believing that one of Thatcher's primary problems was that she didn't understand Northern Ireland. That's a problem that we're still having today with Karen Bradley. And in fairness, this is a strange place. It's a place where the ordinary rules of discourse don't seem to come into play. And it's very frustrating for a younger generation or or a more liberal generation to find that our politics is still very much largely influenced and ruled 
by those old tropes. There's so many more, in my opinion, so many more day-to-day important issues that should be prioritised. There are people here that, you know, desperately need help. But no, I, I don't think that Margaret Thatcher did understand it. I'm not sure that there has really anybody that, that has, with the exception of perhaps Mo Molum, who just took these guys to task and took no rubbish from them. A phenomenal woman. That was Claire Allen. So... 40 years after her election. Is Northern Ireland ready to forgive Margaret Thatcher? I don't think it's going to happen within this generation anyway, and probably not for a few generations. I've actually been quite shocked because obviously there's been quite a bit of discussion about Margaret Thatcher on social media over the last few weeks, and I've been knowing this interview was coming up, dipping in and out and seeing what people are saying. And I suppose I am still really shocked at the level of vitriol. The hate runs so, so deep. But that's very systematic of this country, unfortunately, and that, you know, the, the wounds are really there. We may think that we're healing over, but how we move forward, that that's the question. If, if I knew the answer to that and anybody knew the answer to that, you know, we would have moved forward by now. Hey, Siobhan. Perhaps in Northern Ireland, there's a, a more tolerant tone towards her now than that she might be in, in other parts of the UK. I think because of the, the nature of the peace process, I think it essentially meant that all sides had to agree that whilst they wouldn't ever really see eye to eye, that they would, to a certain extent, kind of have to just live with each other and try and kind of move on and just focus on the future rather than the past. So I think while you know, very few people would particularly admire her, I think many people would see her as a very flawed person who was kind of trying her best. I think it was quite striking even on the day that Margaret Thatcher died that when Jerry Adams, the Sinn Féin leader, was asked for comments about her death, you know, he said that he didn't want to speak ill of her when she'd when she just died, which isn't exactly a resounding endorsement. But I think there's kind of a bit of a sense that perhaps in Northern Ireland more than other places that, you know, kind of trying to leave the history in the past and not make things too personal. If Northern Ireland felt a long way from Westminster in the 1980s, Scotland felt much the same. Sophie Walker is a feminist activist and founding leader of the Women's Equality Party. Growing up in Scotland when Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister, we were in a different country (laughs) that felt very far away from Westminster and from the Conservatives and from the sort of posh men that she surrounded herself with. And it didn't feel like representative politics to us at all. Sophie's one of several women we spoke to who grew up in Scotland, in Thatcher's Britain. And we're not going to lie to you, they've things to say. Here's Sophie again, along with Aisha Hazarika, a former Labour advisor, commentator, feminist and comedian, and A.L. Kennedy, a writer and comedian. I grew up in Glasgow in the 1970s. Glasgow has a strong, radical, left-wing history. My mum and dad were very much in those circles. My mum was a member of the women's liberation movement. I remember very clearly, actually, they were involved in support for the miners and specifically also for the miners' wives. So my mum and her friends, who were also feminist activists, used to go and stand outside Boots and encourage customers going in and out to donate uh, menstrual products for the miners' wives who couldn't afford them because of the strike. I also grew up in Scotland, so the hatred of Margaret Thatcher was very, very strong. You know, she had shut down huge numbers of coal mines, Quite a few steelworks, I think, were shut down around the time that I was growing up. And then, of course, she tried to introduce the poll tax in Scotland. We were the guinea pigs. Urban populations were very, and and still kind of are, very into self-education, being quite proactive. There's never been 
the organic distrust of intelligence that seems to have been fed into English culture. And obviously now people can sit there and seriously say, ah, oh, we've had enough of experts. It's like, off you go and have your heart surgery done by a fucking plumber then. You know, it's utterly monstrous. In the 80s, just when Thatcher was dragging England increasingly far away, Scotland was sort of thinking, oh, that's who we are. So is Thatcher's legacy in Scotland the independence movement? Proud Scott Val McDermott is a crime writer and a Question Time regular. There were certainly stirrings in Scotland around that time. People were actively starting to have conversations about what would it be like to have our own parliament? What would it be like to be the masters of our own fate? What would it be like to actually get the government we voted for instead of, you know, perennially the government we didn't vote for? People were starting to have those political conversations. And, of course, the miners' strike was convulsive, you know, closing down of the mines, closing down of Raven's Great. All these things were convulsive in, in Scotland. They, they did hugely undermine the traditional body politic and opened the, the door for a third force, which is now, of course, the, the principal force in Scottish politics, the SNP. It's an opinion that A.L. Kennedy shares. You had this kind of complete arrogance, which I know drove... Uh, the north of England crazy. They were English, but her Englishness was so southeastern and so pussycat bow and so there are things that we can't mention while I'm best friends with Pinochet, but let's not say bottom. You know, this whole bizarreness, I think it pushed the independence movement even further and faster because you were looking down and going, wow, that's definitely not us. And we were in a better position than Birmingham, which was also screaming, what? But Scotland could say, oh, yeah, we're, we're a different country. We're not buying that. And talking of Birmingham, here's Jess Phillips, who grew up in the city and has been the MP for Birmingham Yardley since 2015. I remember her so vividly as a child. Being born in the Thatcher era in Birmingham meant that we were out, what seemed to me in my memory, I'm sure that this is probably rose-tinted or not, however you see it, we were out campaigning about something that Thatcher was doing literally weekly. She was talked about in my household more than any other figure, even members of our family. She was a very real presence in a way that I don't think that any Prime Minister since would be in the same way. He wasn't on their doorstep, so they didn't have to look at it and they didn't have to see that devastation. That's Debbie Matthews, Sheffield born and bred and heavily involved in helping her community since a very young age, including being involved in the Sheffield Women Against Pit Closures, but more on that later. My dad came from a family of 11 and out of the boys, 50% of them went into steel and engineering and the other 50% went into mining. And at that time, the steel and engineering industries were also being attacked, if you like. The trade unions were under pressure. We were losing jobs left, right and centre in steel and engineering. So it was that combination of what was happening in the pit communities, but also what was happening in Sheffield and its core industries. I think her legacy has been the destruction of manufacturing industry, sucking all the investment down into the southeast of the country and actually creating almost like a barrier between the north and the south, with the north actually being starved of investment and people's lives being disregarded. Debbie's right. The damage Thatcher inflicted on the north of England cannot be underestimated. Here's Lisa Holdsworth. 
writer for Screen and Stage and Deputy Chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, remembering West Yorkshire in the 1980s and how the region reacted when, on April 8th, 2013, it heard the news that Margaret Thatcher had died. That north-south divide was very established. The idea of this trickle-down economics, things are getting better, send us your huddle masses-type speeches. When you were looking around the streets, the schools, the hospitals, I mean, everything just felt so run down and unloved during that time. And, then, you know, that was also an inheritance from a long period of industrial erosion. It just felt dour. As much as I love West Yorkshire, it was a time when there were just bits that were downtrodden and scruffy and there were definite no-go areas, places where you were told not to go as a, as a young child and a teenager. I went into Leeds City Centre the day she died. And I, you know, there are not many people's deaths I would celebrate. And I wouldn't say I was celebrating her death. I was celebrating the death of what she believed in, even though I think maybe that celebration was a little bit premature. There were people out for a drink, out to enjoy themselves that night. People who weren't born when she was in power. And there were 18-year-olds dancing. And there was part of the audience go, you don't even remember her. Why are you dancing? They might not remember her. But what Thatcher did to the North has been felt ever since, as Val McDermott explains. With Thatcher, it was either you are with us or you are against us. There was no halfway house. And if you're against us, you will suffer for being against us. I mean, you know, the the punishment that, that was wreaked on the North of England was quite extraordinary. You know, I remember Manchester in the 80s absolutely on its knees. I felt proud of, of Manchester for for the way that it dragged itself back up and said, fuck you, and reinvented itself, you know, through music, through football, through business. And you look at Manchester now and you see this prosperous, shining city, uh, you know, gleaming at night like Shanghai. Well, maybe not quite Shanghai, because the Irwell's not really, you know, that spectacular. But, you know, Manchester had the resources to do that. A lot of places didn't. There's still northern cities and large northern towns that you go to, and, you know, they look like places that have had the shit kicked out of them, still. The same can be said for Wales. It can be argued Wales gained the impetus for devolution, thanks to Thatcher, who came to symbolise the divide between Wales and England that could only be reconciled by Wales gaining at least some control over its own domestic affairs. By 1999, Wales had its National Assembly. But there's no ignoring that the country was hugely impacted by her smashing of the unions, in particular the miners' strike of 1984 to 1985. I will never negotiate with people who use coercion and violence to achieve their objective. They are the enemies of democracy. They are not interested in the future of democracy. They are trying to kill democracy for their own purposes. That was, of course, Margaret Thatcher talking to ITV's News at 10, 258 days into the minor strike, one of the most defining events of her tenure. In March 1984, miners at Cottonwood Colliery in South Yorkshire walked out in protest at plans to close their pit. What was to follow was a year-long national strike, led by Arthur Scargill of the National Union of Mine Workers against the National Coal Board, and one of the most bitter and protracted in living memory. In a climate of industrial erosion, the coal industry had been dwindling for decades and between 1947 and 1994, some 950 mines were closed by UK governments. What's more, the general public weren't really on the union's side. Here's Barbara Lissicky, comedian, disability rights activist and activist for people's rights in general, 
followed by Caroline Slowcock, then Edwina Curry. Prior to Thatcher, the narrative had been built up that the unions, you know, I always remember this phrase, they're holding the country to ransom. And when she was saying, we will deal with the unions, that was a popular message. The fact is, her predecessor, Tertis, had been defeated effectively by the miners, and she took them on. That was a year-long battle of minds, in which, in the end, Margaret's planning and courage and determination and resolution saw us to a successful conclusion. And before anybody says, oh, she closed the mines and she shouldn't have done, the coal miners that I represented, because I had a coal mining constituency, took me to one side in the Miners' Welfare Club one evening and said, we need you to understand this. We're digging dirt down there and it's dangerous. Your job is to get us something else to do. The thing was, that number I mentioned earlier meant that many communities had already witnessed the devastating effects of pit closures on towns, villages and individuals. For the miners and their families, the 1984 strike was a last stand. When the miners' strike happened, I felt an absolute chill in my heart because I grew up in, in Fife in mining communities. I knew what happened to a village when the pit died because my grandparents' village, the pits had been closed down in 1967 after a disastrous underground explosion and fire that cost nine men their lives. I was quite young at the time, but I, I was old enough to understand what was happening around me and to see the village hollowed out till only people left were the unemployable and the old. You know, everybody moved away because they needed work. At least they had a place to move away to, to get work. But I, I understood what was going to happen to the mining communities of, of the north, of Kent, of Fife, of Lanarkshire. This time around, when Thatcher started to close the pits, I understood why the miners were striking. I just felt that Scargill went about it in totally the wrong way. I did feel that, you know, he should have balloted. That was Val McDermott. She mentions Arthur Scargill there, the figurehead of the strike. And while many derided Scargill for not calling a national ballot before going on strike, Cabinet papers released in 2014 proved that when, at the start of the strike, Scargill claimed that there were secret plans to shut around 70 pits in the face of endless official denials, he was unquestionably correct. OK, let's talk about the part the police played in the strike. Here's Pragna Patel. The miners were experienced for the first time the kind of full might of a militarised way of policing. You know, the way in which it became major battles between the police and the miners, where the police were using the full armoury of the weapons available to them to quash the miners' strike. As Home Secretary, Theresa May championed inquiries into past police abuses in Thatcher's era, including those committed at Hillsborough by South Yorkshire Police. But she refused calls to investigate what are potentially the roots of that disaster, the violence of that same force against striking miners five years earlier at the Battle of Orgreave, a violent clash of police and picketers that took place on June 18th, 1984. It was terrifying in its brutality, and it goes down as one of the most violent clashes in British industrial history. It was no wonder that the miners started to garner support. Southall Black Sisters were part of black delegations to mining communities to show support to miners during the strike and to show support for women against pit closures. And one of the reasons why we were involved in black delegations to mining communities to show our support and solidarity was because we understood as black people what it was like to be in the front 
to be targets of such heavy policing. Now, Thatcher didn't just use the police to decimate the National Union of Miners. She also used economic sanctions. She also used propaganda, all culturally, socially, politically, economically, she had piled up the resources against the miners and the trade union movement generally. And it was an ideological battle to basically decimate the trade union movement. If she could break the power and the might of the National Union of Miners, then the other unions would follow suit. Indeed, the miners touched many people within their own and different communities who rushed to support the men and their families. The one positive, I suppose, was the rise of the wives, the women supporting the miners for the first time that I can recall in, in an industrial dispute that didn't directly affect them in the sense that it wasn't their jobs. Women took to the picket lines, women supported the strikers and women did everything they possibly could to keep families and homes together. I didn't even know Margaret Thatcher was, you know, until we went on strike. Because <laughs> I'm not interested in politics. That's Doc Rogers, who was living in Thurnscoe, South Yorkshire, with her husband Tex, a miner, at the time of the strike. She tells us what it was like and how she and other women from the area banded together to help the miners and their families in the Women Against Pit Closures movement. When she came into power and she did all them cuts and things like that, I said, everybody went on strike and not be the money. So we decided to set up a pit camp, I know, a soup kitchen, and we went round working class areas collecting money. She used the police as strike breakers, and we had police in our village watching us and things like that. What did we do? Well, we had that pit camp, and Sheffield joined us. Sheffield Women in Pit Closures, they joined us, and they were fantastic. And we went out collecting. People used to fetch food for us, and they were all a Sunday on the pit camp, always. We had a caravan, we were to sleep in it at night. We had a fire, what never went out. We kept it going all the time. People used to visit us from all over the country. We used to go and sit in, you know, like in a power station. Once we got into a power station, and um, we stopped there all night, and then we come out next morning. We didn't cause no trouble or all like that. We were okay. We used to have people come and entertain us, you know, like jugglers, people what could play instruments and things like that. Anyhow, and then we had a, a balloon. I got picked to go in balloon. There were foreigners. And we went all around Dern Valley, which was absolutely brilliant. We did also anything for people to learn about it, what were going off. People don't know half on it. Or live down south and things like that, they don't know half on it. It completely changed my life, actually. It was a life-transforming experience. That's Debbie Matthews, proud Sheffield woman, member of the Sheffield Women Against Pit Closures and part of the collective behind the excellent book You Can't Kill the Spirit, the untold story of the women who set up camp to stop pit closures. Our intent was to be there 24-7 for as long as it took, which meant we had a rotor to coordinate... It was all about building relationships with the local community, the miners who were still working at that time, and being part of the Women Against Pit Closures movement. Because whilst I'd worked in the unemployment centre, 
I'd worked with men and women and this was working with an organisation that was actually women and women leading was new to me and that changed the way that I thought about campaigning and organising because I think women do it differently to men. The sense of solidarity and pride these women felt is tangible but it couldn't stop the ruin that was wreaked on communities. Here's Val, then Dot, then Barbara. I was covering the story to some degree as a journalist. I would get sent out to go out and see what was happening on the picket line. So I saw it firsthand, not all the time, not every day because I worked for a Sunday paper, but I saw the depredations of what's happening in these communities, the poverty. After the strike, our village went downhill. Unemployment, crime, all rents increases, people on low wages. She killed the community. She killed our communities in Dern Valley. She killed everything. She caused all this. Arthur Scargill, they tried to make him into this demon figure, so they absolutely brought him down. Ten years later, everybody knew that Scargill was right, because he said, if she gets away with what she's doing, there will be no mining industry left in this country. It was true. Every mine got closed down. She had an agenda to smash the unions. She started with the print unions, and they were some of the strongest unions. But, you know, she got into bed with Murdoch. She really destroyed the idea of union organisation and working-class people self-organising to protect conditions. And I think because there were enough right-wing union leaders that betrayed, I think, their members and went along with it. All you read in what was largely a Murdoch and Tory-dominated press was the violent pickets that did X, Y and Z. But actually, what was actually going on was that people's rights to be in a union and people's rights were being violated everywhere. Between 1979 and 1990, Margaret Thatcher shut down 115 pits. In 1994, her successor, John Major, privatised British coal. But by then, the corporation had closed all but the most economical pits anyway. The last deep coal mine in the UK closed in December 2015, bringing to an end centuries of deep coal mining in Britain. It seemed to many that the miners' strike ended in a decisive victory for the Conservative government. But for many of those involved, the victory was in the struggle itself. They all mucked in together. We were united. That's what we were. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. And to all the British people, howsoever they voted, may I say this, now that the election is over, may we get together and strive to serve and strengthen the country of which we are so proud to be a part. While many of Thatcher's policies impacted individual regions of the country, some policy caused UK-wide change. And while it's not a competition, the single policy that came up most, being mentioned by almost every woman we interviewed, can be summed up by these two words. Council House. Council House. Council House. The Housing Act of 1980 gave council housing tenants the right to buy the property in which they lived for the first time. The sale price was based on a market valuation, but also included a discount of between 33 and 50% for houses and up to 70% for flats. Sounds great, right? A lot of people agreed, and by 1987, more than a million council houses in the UK had been sold to their tenants, my parents included. But if you're wondering what the aftertaste of the policy was, it's also worth noting that none of their children 
all of whom work full-time, can afford to buy a house in the town we grew up in. Is the inaffordability of mortgages, and indeed rents in many cities, a direct result of the right to buy? We asked Alison Inman, a former president of the Chartered Institute of Housing. Right to buy, we are seeing repercussions 40 years later. Because right to buy is one thing, but what we saw with Thatcher that we haven't got now was councils were not allowed to replace. So it was ideological. It was about creating the property owning democracy. And it was the beginning of the othering of social housing tenants. It was very much binary. If you buy, you're successful. If you don't, you're not. But the fact that councils were forced to sell off all this stuff and then weren't allowed to keep the receipts and build... And that's one of the many reasons we've got the crisis that we've got today. In some areas, the the massive proportion of right-to-buys are now in the private rented sector. If you wind back 30 years, if you go around a big council estate, that generation of working-class people who who were able to exercise the right-to-buy still lived in the property, spent money on it, had pride in it. At the same time, councils did not have enough money to do repairs. So you could walk round and go, that's the right-to-buy that's the council house. If you do that now, I could take you on, you know, any estate in the country. The shit ones are often those that have ended up in the private rented sector. The council housing, housing association housing is in much better condition than it was. Private rented stuff often is just hideous and we're paying the rent on it. And if you ally that with the fact that people aren't able a lot of the time to stay why would you do the garden if you're paying a really high private rent your landlord can kick you out on a whim why is it in your interest to create that sense of community if what you're worried about is the fact that your kids have been to three different schools and they're still on the 11 i mean there was a great benefit for a lot of people that first generation we had ridiculous situations where Councils had massive homelessness problems. They had a load of land. They were raising money from selling council houses. They had unemployed construction workers. And yet, they weren't allowed to build. It was ideology. Here's Barbara Lizicki with more on the great council house sell-off. The worst thing, absolutely the worst thing, because not only did it kind of begin to stigmatise the idea of social housing and council housing, which had been a massive Labour achievement. You know, a million houses were built in the five years of the Labour government, post-war Labour government. If you had a council house, you had security. You could stay there. And, you know, when you break down communities, you break down people's support structures. And that's also what happened. But what about the rented sector? Over to you, Alison. When Thatcher came to power, I think only about 8% of people lived in the private rented sector. They introduced the Housing Act that did away with security of tenure in the private rented sector. They did away with fair rent. So go to a rent tribunal, they would set the rent on your property and the landlord could do bugger all about it. We saw the increase of the use of the private rented sector. We saw something as well, which which we have echoes of today, which was something called the bed and breakfast rules, where you had usually homeless young people living in B&B accommodation, often in the seaside, because that's where there were loads of empty B&Bs. It was the only way they could get somewhere to live and get off the street. So they introduced caps on the length of time that benefits would pay for that. So it's the first time, really, we'd seen the benefit system used in order to do something about a housing situation. And we're seeing that now with the bedroom tax. We saw the 
beginning of large-scale voluntary transfer, so housing being moved from local authorities into new kinds of housing associations. And one of the things we saw, which still paying the price for now, I think, is a backlog of repairs, £18 billion. It was, I think, estimated by the time Labour got in in 1997, which is one of the reasons that Labour didn't build enough, because they were trying to make the social housing stock fit for purpose. So Thatcher's policy on housing indelibly changed the country. But, Jess Phillips argues, it also changed the very way we look at houses. Her housing policy, which lots of people were herald as being the thing that gave them wealth, we have entirely switched the idea of a home being a place where we live to a place that provides us with wealth. And that is the single greatest thing that holds my constituents back is the way that we view the housing market. Ask anyone in a constituency where they were about to build a telephone mast or build a new power station or a prison. Nobody ever says, I'm worried about the safety of my children. I'm worried about what this is going to do to the area. I'm worried about the kind of people this is going to bring to the area. Everybody always says, I'm worried about what this is going to do to my house price. That is Thatcherism writ large in our everyday conversations. And cracking that is going to be incredibly difficult for politics to do in even the next 50 years. And so Thatcher's legacy in that regard, to turn the working classes on each other, it was a stroke of genius on her part, but evil genius, I'd say. Division. Yeah, that word came up a lot too. Division between the rich and poor, division between North and South and division between communities themselves. Here's Lisa Holdsworth using that very word. It feels like division. It feels like a them and us. It feels like we should be past judging people on their class, assuming that people are lazy if they're they're not wealthy. And I feel like her influence, not just on the UK, I think on the world, arrested that. And what we see as a, a lasting legacy is the snottiness that of all the things I'm proud of being British, our snottiness, our attitude to people we consider below us in the pecking order, the constant checking of where we are in the pecking order, mentally, constantly, I feel is her her legacy. And I, I, I find it exhausting, to be quite honest with you. And Samira Ahmed? University in the mid-1980s, it was incredibly divided. There was a very powerful dominant conservative scene because I was at university 86 to 89 which is kind of peak peak Tory years and people like David Cameron were there Michael Gove Jeremy Hunt I mean I remember all of them they were all going to be Tory MPs god Jacob Rees-Mogg was a joke at Oxford University but he was always going to try to be Tory MP Boris Johnson was president of the union I mean it's interesting isn't it to see where they all are now there was just this gulf between people who felt, you know, that whole kind of yuppie idea of aspiration and rising property prices and stuff, which affected certain people in certain parts of the country, was great. And then all those regions that had been devastated by mine closures and industrial closures with nothing to replace it. And for years afterwards, I mean, I remember at Newsnight in the early 90s when I was a reporter doing features about the town where men just didn't have work and a lot of young women were single parents. And you just thought, these are Thatcher's children too, aren't they? But they're her unwanted children. And here's Pragna Patel, founder of South Hall Black Sisters, followed by Val McDermott, Dot Rogers and Jess Phillips, about what happens 
when you snip the ties that bind. Her legacy is a legacy of austerity, privatisation, neoliberalism, which has not only remained with us, but actually been reinvigorated. You know, life under austerity measures have been as bleak and as despairing now as they were under Thatcher, perhaps worse, because even in the 70s and 80s, the welfare state was not as dismantled as it is now. Now we have an NHS in crisis, I mean, severe crisis mode. We have groups, disabled pensioners, mentally ill without services. We have no legal aid or very little legal aid left. All the tools, all the the safety nets that people need to survive and flourish. Just walk into our village and look and see teenagers what can't get right jobs because, well, not teenagers, they're grown men now and there's still no, no, no jobs. Division and poverty, the creation of an underclass. You know, the one, one of the, the, the things that you can actually point to that Tony Blair and Gordon Brown did between them was improve the lot of people at the bottom of the heap. Not hugely, but they really worked, and Gordon in particular worked against child poverty. And all that work has been undone in the last nine years. The underclass of this country is... You, you're talking about people with three, four generations of unemployment, people in shitty accommodation, with, with no hope, with no, with no model, no template, nobody to look at and say, I want to be like you. Talk about bread and circuses. Jeez, we've got the circuses, but we've not got very much bread. One of the things that I find absolutely staggering is the rise of food banks. People working who can't feed their families. The town I grew up in, in Kirkcaldy, was a prosperous and industrial town, full of working people doing a, doing a day's work and getting a proper day's pay. People could support themselves. They, they, they had decent homes, they could feed their families, they had a decent life. Now Kirkcaldy has, if you discount Glasgow, the poorest council wards in the country. We have higher levels of child poverty in the town where I grew up in than anywhere outside Glasgow, and that shames me. I think her legacy on society in general is terrible, absolutely terrible. And I don't just say that from a sort of political standpoint. I think that Thatcher created both a pernicious economic model that was so entrenched by the end of her reign that people forgot that there was another parameter and that the rolling back of society that she wanted to do and the breakdown of collective responsibility and social bonds continues to this day as being for lots of the public the abiding philosophy that people on benefits are scroungers, that that people who end up in bad situations did it to themselves. That is her greatest legacy, is to basically divide and conquer that bloody woman was everywhere. You're not wrong. Here's A.L. Kennedy arguing that Thatcher even changed the way we use words. I was struck at the time and I was interested in language even at that time. I was struck by how good she was at reframing language so that it meant less and less. And that process seemed to begin with her. 
that you stopped telling the truth and you stopped allowing language to make it very clear that you were lying. It, it, language and sentences began to not really mean anything and you got all of this nonsense about choice, which basically meant you can choose to starve to death or you can choose to have money. She and Reagan decided there's no history. There are no facts. We can sell anything. Money is everything. If it's making a profit, we can reframe it so that you can find it acceptable. Virtue is wealth. Intelligence is wealth. Admiration is wealth. You know, everything became tiny. Everything got the price tag on them. And it was the beginning of healthcare isn't about healthcare. It's about wealth. Education isn't about education. It's about wealth. Transport isn't about transport. It's, it's about wealth. And you became a customer. Wherever you were going, you became a customer. And a customer, all you really know about a customer is that a customer is going to pay for something. If you're a customer and not a passenger, a passenger goes somewhere. And as we know from British trains... The police were the ones that were front line in defending her policies, if you think about it. Poll tax riots, race riots, miners' strikes, the whopping printers' strikes... All those trade unions, we were always the front line, so we were the bad boys and girls. That's Jenny Rees, a former police officer who worked for the Met in the 1980s. Thatcher's unwavering support for the police, and almost her first action on coming into office in 1979, was to approve a 45% pay rise, certainly lent the force a certain swagger. And the nickname Thatcher's Boot Boys wasn't without good reason. Here's Samira Ahmed. I was really angry and shocked by things like the whopping disputes by the miners' strike. There was I growing up in South London, but I could see that these were terrible, terrible things that were being done to ordinary people's lives. And there was a, a recklessness about it. I think we can't underestimate how much police violence is tied up with how young people like me saw Thatcherism, because they just defended the police regardless, despite all this evidence of violence. I interviewed Benjamin Zephaniah recently. We were just talking about how much he used to just get stopped and beaten up on the street by the police. He'd be picked up. You know, and he, was, he was involved in some crime, but he'd be framed for other crimes he never committed. And he was telling me about, you know, you'd be locked in a cell, uh, beaten up every day for a couple of days, and they'd use a mattress so like, the bruises didn't show. And then they'd take you into court on the Monday, and they'd say they'd only just arrested you the night before. And everyone believed them. I do think that's one of the most corrosive legacies of Thatcherism, which got challenged, which was how, and I don't know how small a minority it was of police, but there was a terrible amount of police brutality going on across the country. She just defended it all. And you look at Hillsborough, you look at Blair Peach, the teacher who was trampled under a police horse, wasn't he, at an anti-racist protest in Southall. I mean, that, was, that story happened without me quite knowing it. And I came to be aware of it in hindsight, because it was always being referred to on programmes at Not the Nine O'Clock News. So I had this real awareness of police corruption. My early teenage years are characterised by this awareness that this government was in denial and it was affecting real people. and People were dying or being beaten up or being framed. And again, you look at crimes like the Birmingham Six, you know, the innocent Irishmen who were locked up for all those years for the IRA bombing and the sort of systemic corruption within the criminal justice system, which she herself isn't directly responsible for, but she did nothing to tackle it. And that was one of her associations. She was the, the Prime Minister of Law and Order. But, you know, these were the terrible sins that were 
enabled with that hardline attitude. There was also was it James Anderton, who was this Christian fundamentalist chief constable of Greater Manchester Police. He was always in private eye. He was anti-gay and had these bizarre ideas about gay people and about policing. I mean, it was it was shocking. And then there were people like John Stalker, who died quite recently, you know, who investigated a lot of police corruption. There were people fighting back through it all and trying to do it within the system because Stalker was a, a policeman himself. And all those stories were really important. I think for a lot of teenagers in the 1980s, you had a sense of being in a kind of resistance. You didn't know how long this war was going to last. And here's Pagna Patel, founding member and director of Southall Black Sisters, set up in 1979 in the aftermath of race riots in Southall, on what institutionalised racism within the police meant for the BAME community. Certainly, I think that 1979, the advent of Thatcher, the wider climate for black and minority communities is very much one of feeling beleaguered, feeling very, very much excluded, treated as outsiders, treated as less than citizens. And part of that experience was the way in which racism was institutionalized in the police force. And there is no question that the police have been institutionally racist for a very long time. It was only with the death of Stephen Lawrence that was finally acknowledged. But, you know, 79, we saw the race riots in Southall, as a result of which over 300 Asian youths were arrested. There were National Front protesters, not a single white National Front youth was arrested. All the people who were arrested were Asian youths. And in the process, an Afro-Caribbean community center was demolished by the police in the course of the riots. A white anti-racist teacher, Blair Peach, was killed by the special patrol group, which was a notoriously militarized arm of the police. The killers of Blair Peach have never been brought to justice since. The black experience of racism was perhaps at its most visceral in terms of its relationship of black youths in particular and the police. Stop and search, harassment on the streets. These were all daily experiences. Under Thatcher, those experiences you know, there was no acknowledgement of any of that. Those experiences heightened as civil unrest broke out throughout the country. And here's what Gina Negus and Jenny Rees, both former police officers in the Met, have to say about how the police were used during the Thatcher era. Did she use the police more than her predecessors? I can't really say that that's the case, to be perfectly honest. All politicians use the police. And I think it's a great shame because I think the police suffer for that because the majority of police officers that I know are decent, honourable, good people that you can rely on. There are very few bad pennies that I ever came across. When I returned to the Met, I was a scenes of crime officer, but I worked very closely with the CID and uniform. And the feelings were that we were politicised. When I first started as a WPC, we were told in training that we were apolitical. And we're not. We are used as pawns for politicians. And it goes right back to the days of the suffragettes, where the police were used to bat and charge these women and arrest them, and not nicely either. Okay, the police officers may have had their own agenda to a certain extent, but they were used by politicians to control people, and that's what we have always been used for. And as Gina says, 
we are the fall guys for it. Hello. I just noticed you going in your bag for something and could hear the jingle jangle of some change. Now then, if that change isn't being used for a cup of tea or coffee or to do a worthy cause, you could consider giving it to us. And you can do that by popping over to our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash standard issue. And any bunts you would like to throw our way is very gratefully received and helps us keep making content that champions women. Thanks very much. Be a conservative and sound like a conservative and win an election, they said. And you certainly couldn't win an election and then act like a conservative and win another election. And this was absolutely beyond dispute. You couldn't win two elections and go on behaving like a conservative and yet win a third election. Listening to all this, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Thatcher's government wasn't elected three times. And to be clear, it was. Although, given her huge unpopularity in many areas, the reasons why are less clear. After a shaky start to her tenure, the 1982 Falklands War was a tremendous boon to Thatcher's reputation and to her electoral chances. Samira Ahmed is a news journalist, writer and broadcaster who grew up in South London. Funnily enough, my daughter asked me the other day, my teenage daughter asked me about the Falklands War and what was it about. And you actually look back and you think, well, actually, it was really odd. It was these tiny islands thousands of miles away, but it was this amazing opportunity for her. And I think maybe that's the other thing, is it's a reminder of that really powerful and disturbing partnership between the Murdoch press and people in power. All those headlines about our boys, all the jingoism, which fed newspaper headlines. And you may remember there was that woman who challenged Margaret Thatcher on Nationwide and said, wasn't the Belgrano sailing away when... British ship fired on it and killed all those Argentine soldiers and you know she didn't like that one bit and you realise these moments of challenge stand out all the more because they were so rare because there was this quite jingoistic consensus it was bizarre it was sort of like a, a dream scenario that you had this war it was far enough away that we weren't really in danger and it was very clear who was right and there were other factors because the Americans refused to help Britain didn't they because they had, were backing the Argentine regime which was busy torturing left-wing dissidents I mean god the politics of that era are so hideous but Thatcher's popularity often appeared to defy expectation. Here's Samira with more, followed by Aisha Hazarika, on why Thatcher was popular in many immigrant communities. My mother came over as a journalist to work at the World Service in the Eastern section. And my father came just you know, to make a new start in life and became incredibly successful. I think of how many people he's employed, how much he's paid in taxes to this country. And I can tell you, my parents both voted Tory. My father is sort of classic small businessman and he really respected her. You know, he said she understands business. The great paradox was that a lot of people like my parents and a lot of certainly the Indian community and the Asian community, even though they felt no part of Thatcher's Britain, they still voted for Thatcher. They were quite small C conservatives, particularly on the economy, and they also did quite like the aspiration message but they did also feel excluded you know they were like second class citizens but what was so interesting i think about when labor finally got its act together and you know new labor are in the run-up to their huge landslide in 1997 that is when i think i felt when labor won 
and I wasn't a leader, I wasn't a political person, I liked politics, but I wasn't kind of tribal at all. That is when I did feel like this country changed a lot in terms of like people for me, like me and my family. People of colour were not the only group to seemingly vote against their own interests. Many women, many in the LGBT community and many people in deprived areas still put their ex in the box marked Conservative. Why? It's the economy, stupid. Here's one of the founders of Stonewall, Lisa Power, followed by Lisa Holdsworth and Val McDermott. People love a strong leader. And Margaret Thatcher was everybody's nanny or, you know, stroppy granny that you forgive for being a bit racist and a bit homophobic because she's a go-getter and gets, gets things done. And also, there are a vast number of people who will vote with their pockets and not their consciences. And everybody thought that Margaret Thatcher was going to make them a little bit richer. People who lived in council houses wanted to buy their council house. People who had never owned stocks and shares wanted to buy a few shares in British Gas and see it go through the roof or whatever. She essentially bribed our nation into a set of decisions, some of which genuinely did modernise things that were very out of date, but most of which actually meant that In the long run, and we can see it now, 30, 40 years on, there is a massive and ever since that time has been growing gap between the very rich and the rest of us. And what I find fascinating at the moment is that the very rich are the people who are mouthing nonsense platitudes about elites and things like that to get less well off and slightly less well informed people to vote for them because somehow they think that some of that money might rub off on them one day. It's the lie of trickle-down economics. That idea of you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and if you work hard enough, things will fall in your lap and as long as you've bought your house, you'll always be safe. And now we know that to be absolute rubbish. Trickle-down economics is the biggest con job that has been ever pulled on, on, on the world, basically. I struggled a lot of the time with, with everything that came out of the government at that period, and I couldn't understand how she still kept winning elections. You know, I couldn't understand. And it was because it was, it was essentially the bribery. It was the greed is good, here's your council house, or you can afford to buy a car. Never mind the debt, you'll pay it off. Plus, it seems, some women enjoyed voting for a woman. No, really. Here's Debbie Matthews. I know women who voted for Margaret Thatcher because she was a woman. Oh, yes. And I still have difficulty having a civil conversation with those those people now. I don't actually know many people who did vote Conservative because they were Conservatives. But I do know women who voted for Margaret Thatcher just because she was a woman. It's really hard to understand that motivation for voting for somebody like Margaret Thatcher when she was really clear about her politics, wasn't she? Really clear about what she intended to do. And she had a plan and she followed that through. Dame Professor Athene Donald is the Master of Churchill College, Cambridge, which houses the Thatcher Papers. Here's what she thinks about why Thatcher appealed to so many voters. I think because she was always so sure of what she was doing and she conveyed that certainty. It's tempting to make a comparison with our present Prime Minister. If you look at what brought Thatcher down, in many ways, it was the poll tax. And there, she wasn't listening to what she heard. They did a pilot in Scotland, which did not go well, and they still ploughed ahead, despite being divisive. I think that certainty, that definiteness about her actions, was perhaps reassuring to some people. 
But everything must fall. I think actually she'd done the job for too long towards the end and had become a bit of a megalomaniac, you know. All power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yep, what Edwina Curry said. 1987 was the last general election in which Margaret Thatcher stood as leader of the Conservative Party. We're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. On November the 22nd, 1990, Margaret Thatcher resigned as Prime Minister. Her attitude to Europe and her insistence on the introduction of the poll tax had led to fierce opposition within her party. So she'd taken on her party and lost. Caroline Slowcock was the only other woman in the room where it happened. It's been a haunting image for me, the experience of being the only other woman in the cabinet room and seeing her trying to read out her resignation statement to the male colleagues, all male colleagues, who had the night before effectively told her that her time was up. She tried to read out the resignation statement, but as she spoke, her voice broke down. She started crying and she just couldn't, you know, she just couldn't do it. One of her colleagues said, look, Margaret, we can read this for you. She said, no, no, I've started and I'm going to finish it. She got to the end and then she said, well, I don't think you'll have heard that very clearly, so I'll read it again. Shockingly, there were men in the room who were crying and I started to cry too. She really touched me. You know, I've never quite escaped that feeling of seeing her so vulnerable and small. But then later in the day, she was incredibly courageous. She went out into the House of Commons and gave a, a, a kind of rip-roaring performance. She even said, I'm enjoying this. I knew I didn't like her, but it felt like she was just going to be there forever. She and the Queen were just going to be there forever. I thought they were sort of a double act of like a sort of deal between Number 10 and the palace. That's Aisha Hazarika, speaking for all of us who were teenagers when Margaret Thatcher stood down. It felt like a really big moment. And when she resigned, it did actually feel quite scary. Like, well, I know we didn't like her that much, but what is going to happen now? Because this has been the only thing we've known for so many years. Who could possibly come and fill this space that this huge character and this huge force of personality and this very dominant person has occupied? Samira Ahmed wholeheartedly agrees. I was 11 years old in 1979, so it was the year that I started secondary school. Her years in power mark my teenage years entirely, up to graduation. And I know exactly where I was the day that she announced she was resigning, which is I was a BBC News trainee. I had just started the kind of prestigious graduate traineeship. And I was editing our student version of the Today programme. And I think the news broke about 11 o'clock in the morning, so the planning day. And suddenly the world had changed. None of us had imagined a world without Margaret Thatcher. You know, we'd grown up entirely under this one prime minister. I just remember feeling that the world was changing, and it, and it did. I mean, 1990 just marked the start of the whole world changing. She's right. Although there was one thing that many, Alison Inman among them, feared wouldn't change. I remember really vividly where I was when she stood down in the town hall in Basildon, thinking, oh, fucking hell, she's gone. That's probably enough for the Tories to win the next election. It was. Thatcher's successor, John Major, took the Tories to victory in 1992 which meant that even after she'd gone, Thatcher's work continued apace. One of the things people forget who are very young is that the 1980s didn't actually stop until 1997, when Tony Blair got elected. That's Samira again. Even after Margaret Thatcher resigned, so many of the ideological policies she pushed 
some of the most shocking only actually happened after she resigned. So the privatisation of the railways, which has been a huge scandal, was done by John Major and it was done relatively late. But they're all her babies. It's not as simple as when she left. She left. She didn't. Her work was being pushed on. With one big exception, that is. John Major announced he was scrapping the poll tax in his very first parliamentary speech as Prime Minister. Thatcher was furious. The President of the Commission, Mr Delors, said at press conference the other day that he wanted the European Parliament to be the democratic body of the community, he wanted the Commission to be the executive, and he wanted the Council of Ministers to be the Senate. No, no, no. So, 40 years after she was elected, can Thatcher's influence still be found in the Houses of Parliament? Take our current political horror show, Can We Lay the Blame for the Brexit Bumfight at Thatcher's Door? Here's Dame Athene with her view, which, given the ever-changing nature of the situation, for clarity we should say that we recorded on March the 27th. I think it is a legacy of how she managed to paper over the cracks in the split in her party over Europe. I think she herself was quite committed to things like, I mean, she was a great proponent of the single market, for instance. She believed in that kind of Europe working together. What she didn't believe in was a federal Europe. But I think even at the time, there were many within her own party who absolutely did not value the connections with Europe. But she was a strong enough leader that she could paper that over. And as we saw when John Major came along, there were already great stresses within the party over Europe. And I think we are still see that playing out. And what is so disappointing is the story today is made about the Tory party, not about the country. And to some extent, I think that's something Thatcher wouldn't have done. So I think we are now in a mess where the Tories are turning on themselves. And it's as if the rest of the country can go hang. I think remembering what she didn't didn't do about Europe is interesting at this point because people would say of Churchill, oh, well, he was or he wasn't or he would or wouldn't have been a Brexiteer. And I think it's quite difficult to pigeonhole people from a very different time into the situation we currently are. But I do think her ability as a strong leader, that is the legacy we're seeing in the way the Tories are falling apart and fighting each other now. Caroline Slocock was the first female private secretary at number 10, serving from 1988 to 1990, and is the author of People Like Us, Me and Margaret Thatcher. Here are her thoughts on Thatcher in Europe. I tend to think that what I call the Great Brexit Tory War started at the time when I was working for her in her last 18 months. There was this internal battle going on about whether Britain should start to align its currency with a view to ultimately achieving monetary union, to which she was implacably opposed and which her top top two ministers wanted her to do. She was also angry about the direction of travel as she saw it in Europe. So, you know, she came back from Europe a few weeks before she was forced to resign over the question of Europe and the poll tax. She came back saying no, no, no in Parliament to the you know, what she saw as the sort of increasing centralisation of super states uh, being formed of Europe. And that was a sort of huge rift in the party. Geoffrey Howe resigned because he felt that she was undermining Britain's role in Europe. Things have never been properly healed since. It was a hugely emotional thing to um, bring your own leader down, which they did with Margaret Thatcher. And the, the, the rifts have never really healed 
know, people won't be thinking daily of those events back, you know, 30 years ago. But the kind of emotions within the Conservative Party have never been resolved. I suspect unless Theresa May is able to find a way through that works for everybody, which is not much sign of really, that we'll have another 30 years of this kind of tearing themselves apart over an issue that a few years back, opinion polls showed most people in Britain didn't have very high feelings about. Now, here we are, you know, all at each other's throats, really, on the question of Brexit. Plus, as Joe Colfield points out, there's this. Horribly, I think Brexit is, is a legacy because of the leaving behind of people around the country. And we see it time and time again. You look at the areas and you go, oh, well, oh, Sunderland. You go, have you been to Sunderland? No, no wonder they grasped at any fucking straw that was thrown their way to go, oh, we'll promise you the world vote Brexit. And it's that if we had had more of a sense of community of going, okay, so it's not going to be economically viable for us to make this steal or whatever we're doing. What else are we going to do? How, how are we going to put back to re-educate people so that they can get jobs. It's, I mean, it's complicated, but I think there is a sense that she left people too much where well, you've just got to fend for yourself. Although, you know, she invented the single market, really. She got a lot of good, an awful lot of good out of Europe. But she, I think, started that thing where we're not really European. We don't really like the foreigners. She made us Americans and not a European more community-based society. That's why I think there's hope for Scotland. Since we're talking about Brexit, there's really no getting away from comparisons between this country's first female Prime Minister and its second, because Theresa May came up a lot. I actually had an ideology. I found a loathsome ideology, but she had an ideology. There was a set of beliefs underpinning what she did. Theresa May is just blindly doing what she thinks she's felt. And she, she hasn't got the imagination or the intelligence to get past those tram lines. That was Val McDermid. Here's Aisha Hazarika, followed by A.L. Kennedy and Sophie Walker, on the reflections of Thatcher, earned or not, in our current Prime Minister. I mean, the irony about Theresa May is when she first started as Prime Minister, her very, very first Prime Minister's questions. She aped Margaret Thatcher. She channeled Margaret Thatcher at the dispatch box. She even seemed to morph into her body language. She was very, very scathing on Jeremy Corbyn. She did an absolute dump on Jeremy Corbyn, which was very, very effective. It completely brought the house down. It even delighted many a backbench Labour MP who are no great fan of Jeremy Corbyn. And I remember reviewing that because, of course, I, I did Prime Minister's Questions. I've written a book on Prime Minister's Questions. And everybody was like, oh, my goodness, we have Thatcher incarnate. And, you know, at the beginning of her tenure, the Daily Mail was fawning over her. There's a famous cartoon they did of her in her tartan suit saying, basically, you know, she's, she is the Iron Lady. You know, we have the Iron Lady back on, on Brexit. And, of course, how far removed are we from that now where Theresa May is sort of battered and bruised and weak and lonely and you know without any conviction or, or strength we genuinely feel this is a woman who really doesn't know where she's going and what she wants to do i think she proved that a leader can get away with anything you just have to frame it properly really theresa may can be theresa may because thatcher was thatcher she can dress her weird drunk aunt at an exorcism body in that designer shirt and literally behave like a crazy person. And she's been set up to be, you know, that. She's not 
the girl who has to hold the shitty football of Brexit because none of the boys want to touch it. And they kicked it into the dog shed when they had to play and kick about with the entire country. Obviously, Theresa May was always going to be compared to Margaret Thatcher. And I've always found it odd the way in which the Conservative Party seized upon the fact that they've had two female leaders since 1834 or wherever it was as proof that, you know, women can make it just as much as men. <laughs> Again, Margaret Thatcher's insistence on the sort of that she'd got there on merit that the Conservative Party is a meritocracy is really also now what's doing for Theresa May, who is currently having to bargain away her leadership in order to get any kind of support from her cabinet colleagues and indeed only got that job at a point when the risk was very high, failure looked very likely, and all the men backed off from the job. I could talk at great length (laughs) about the glass cliff phenomenon that Theresa May is now experiencing, which isn't to say that she wasn't also ambitious, that she didn't also very much want the job, but it's a phenomenon that looks at the circumstances and situations in which women's choices are made and constrained. And I think Theresa May has really struggled in that job, not just because I think she's been a terrible leader, but I think she has been very much constrained by ideas of what female leaders should look like and that, you know, the model of Margaret Thatcher has always loomed very, very large. But May's not the only woman we could look to for comparisons with Thatcher. The truth is, massive gasp, that a large number of the UK's political parties are now led or co-led by a woman, including the SNP, the Greens, Change UK, the Scottish Conservatives, the DUP and Sinn Féin. We asked Jess Phillips if she saw anything of Thatcher in today's leading women. The most famous thing that Margaret Thatcher ever said, not returning. I see that in all of them. I see that sort of come and have a go if you think you're hard enough in all of them. I see it less and less in Theresa May as the time goes on, but I certainly saw it when she was the Home Secretary and was the chair of the Conservative Party. It might just be that those people are all like that, and to actually get to the top, you have to be like that. Men never have to do that, do they? John Major wasn't there going, I'm a little bit ooh, a little bit ah. Whereas you get that sense of the sort of straight back of Nicola Sturgeon. Just come and have a go, Sonny Jim. And certainly in Ruth Davidson. But it's not just women in politics. You can draw a line straight from Thatcher. This name also came up a lot. Tony Blair. In fact, in 2002... Thatcher herself was asked what her greatest achievement was. Her answer? New Labour and Tony Blair. Here's Aisha Hazarika with thoughts. She wanted to try and smash the left. She wanted to try and destroy the Labour Party and she wanted to try and destroy the Labour movement, which included the trade unions. And she did a pretty good job on that. She turned the public against the trade union movement. The miners' strike got very, very messy towards the end, but that was a fight that she was willing to take because she knew the long-term effects would be to make people be wary of the Labour Party, and that did work. So a a lot of people at that time saw the Labour Party as just lots of angry men from trade unions shouting and rioting. And and so Neil Kinnock starts the party on the, I suppose, the rehabilitation to power, which is, look, we've got to look at ourselves, we have to look at how we look to the general public, do we look like a group of people that they would trust. Here's Edwina Curry, followed by A.L. Kennedy, on the man many believe was Thatcher 2.0. Extremely bright man, brilliant at presentation. And it occurred to him that the old socialist way of doing things had lost its appeal. If Labour was going to win elections, they had to take on board the Thatcher revolution. 
he agreed to continue the Thatcherite project with some mitigating factors here and there, but he absolutely continued full pace the degradation of political language and, and the public discourse. And of course, I mean, he only got there by making the deal with Rupert Murdoch. And what of Thatcher's own party? After two female leaders, where does its future lie? Here's Aisha Hazarika. You, Martin Rose, I think you look at the next phase of the Tory party and we are going to go back to something that was even more of a boys' club than it was under Thatcher's day, I'm afraid. And also look at my own party, the Labour Party. Why is it that we, even though we have some absolutely outstanding politicians, why have we never been able to elect a woman? When it comes to Thatcher's legacy, there's no denying it's a bit of a mixed bag. But there were definitely some positives. The period had a massive impact on the arts. For example, according to Lisa Holdsworth, Deputy Chair of the Writers Guild of Great Britain, it even heralded a golden age of TV and theatre. The 80s, we, we got another golden age of television. I mean, it seems that every time anybody releases something that more than 10 million people watch, it's considered a golden age of television. But if you look back at, at the 80s, the single plays were still being made play for today, that kind of thing. So you still got amazing single dramas that were often absolute howls of frustration for lost youth, for the generation that will find themselves on the scrap heap, but also basically absolutely anything written by Helen Bleasdale, but certainly the boys from the Blackstone. McGovern's roots are, are in that, that era as well, the things he's written about that frustration in Liverpool. All of that, those strong northern voices, I think, came out of looking around and seeing, seeing a world that was imperfect. A lot of really great theatre around that time as well, a lot of self-determination and getting things up. Companies like Red Ladder in, in Leeds had a, a really golden age. Thatcher's focus on individualism also encouraged more people to enter the arts, as well as giving them a system to rebel against, says comedian Joe Caulfield. And it was punk rock and it was new wave and it was all smashing everything up. But at the same time... What I always think is quite funny, and I very much lived this, was it was also the time of people going, right, I can do what I want. I'm an individual. I don't have to do what my parents did. People going, I'm not going to work in a factory. I'm going to learn guitar, which was very Thatcherite. (laughs) Punk rock was totally like everyone says, even if they didn't like the Sex Pistols, they made a thousand and one people join a band. Everyone will say that, and the the attitude of them, which was, fuck the establishment, you have a right to your voice, and your voice as an individual, not in like a nice hippie movement, your voice to say whatever you want, good or bad. And in some cases, her economic policies even helped enable people to get into the arts. Then there was a thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme, I think Jeremy Hardy went on it as a comedian. I remember him talking about it much later. And what you did, you had to raise £1,000. So I worked at waitressing, got £1,000. Either you gave it to the government or you proved that you'd put it into your business. And then you got a wage which was slightly higher than the dole and you got housing benefit. So it was a way to get people into business. And all sorts of people did it. And like I say, the fact that Jeremy Hardy could go and go, I'm going to be a comedian. Imagine now if you went into some civil servant and said, oh, you know, I'm going to be a comedian with this. Or you could have gone and go, oh, I've got a rock band. And they would go, well, as long as, you know, you can prove that you're, you're trying, <laughs> you could do it. So it was, it was weird, I think, that there was something 
in the times that made people break away and be individual. And some of that was, was good, you know, like the clash, you know, that all that and Red Wedge and all of that showed that people were caring still and we were constantly marching for Nelson Mandela. For some communities, such as the gay community, Thatcher's time at number 10 completely changed their political landscape, says Lisa Power. I'm not sure what Thatcher's legacy is on society in general. I know that she unintentionally stimulated lesbians and gay men to bury quite a lot of our differences and get on with actually making sure that we had equal rights. For the women against pit closures, their experience during the miners' strikes was more politically transformative than the simple fact of having a woman in office as Prime Minister. For Debbie Matthews, this was life-changing. I think it meant different things to different women, but I think right at the heart of it, it was about women realising that they had got skills and they had got the ability to change the world if they wanted to. A lot of the women I came into contact with who were new to campaigning, you could actually see that transformation happening and how empowered they felt. And I know from having kept in contact with you know, a few of those women, not everybody, that they didn't stop campaigning after that. It had opened their eyes to new options and new ideas, and they've all gone on to do other either campaigns or they've changed the jobs because they weren't satisfied with what they were doing. They just grew as as people. That's an amazing legacy. And at that time, whilst it was a feminist movement, I don't think it had actually reached working class communities. And I think that was the difference. It started to take hold in working class communities and women taking control of their own lives. Dot Rogers agrees. We're women, we are strong. That will go through generations, I'm sure it will. Because it come from years and years and years ago, didn't it? All these strikes, even women now, are doing different things, aren't they? Protesting and things like that. Before the strike, we'd have sat back and said no, or done no. Everything's altered, and I'm glad it has. While Thatcher may not have necessarily been a good role model for women in her approach, Sophie Walker thinks she might have been helpful for some simply because of her visibility. I think actually she's more of a model for older women. I think it was Shirley Williams said that when women were first being discussed as possible prime ministers, the argument against them was that they would all be incapable of making decisions once they hit the menopause. I'm guessing that Mrs Thatcher at some point went through the menopause, but we don't seem to have seen evidence of hot flushes or memory lapses or mood swings or anything that sort of made her incapable of doing the job. In fact, it wasn't just her visibility as a woman that was progressive, according to Caroline Slowcock. She's had tremendous influence on our world. We see the world often through her ideological eyes, you know, even though we may hate her. A lot of the things which we accept as normal were created by her. I think she had a a huge impact on Europe. She helped to bring the Berlin Wall down. The relationships she'd forged with Reagan and Gorbachev were immensely influential in helping to end the Cold War. Actually, I think there are things about her which people don't recognise at all, which were very important at the time. She was uh, an absolute trailblazer on global warming. She went to the UN and and was arguing for targets. She managed to stop depletion of the ozone layer by banning CO2. So she was ahead of her time in some ways. And I think part of her legacy should be recognising her achievement as a woman. But it's just, you know, the politics are still so difficult. You know, the feelings are still so raw towards her that we haven't been fair to her as a woman. But most of all, says Sophie, 
Thatcher's visibility as a woman might teach us all a lot more going forward. Well, we can but hope. I would like us to be able, in the not too far distant future, to look back at Margaret Thatcher and say, gosh, haven't we progressed since the initial women to make it to the top? Isn't it brilliant now to see that women leaders can progress more quickly, can bring other women with them, can bring a feminist understanding of the kind of policies that women need to tackle their lived experience and the inequalities they still live with. I'd like us to be able to look at her as a sort of historical exhibit, if you like, of how far we've progressed in terms of ideas of leadership for women. Thanks to all of the women who contributed to this special episode of the Standard Issue podcast. Dame Professor Athene Donald, Claire Allen, Siobhan Fenton, Joe Caulfield, A.L. Kennedy, Val McDermott, Aisha Hazarika, Sophie Walker, Lisa Holdsworth, Dot Rogers, Debbie Matthews, Edwina Curry, Prognan Patel, Barbara Lazicki, Caroline Slowcock, Alison Inman, Samira Ahmed, Jenny Reese, Gina Negus, Lisa Power, Jess Phillips and Libby Liebird. And some of these women have written books relevant to this documentary, which you can find available online or in all good bookshops. Siobhan Fenton has written more about the troubles in Northern Ireland in her book, The Good Friday Agreement. Aisha Hazarika's book, Punch and Judy Politics, is also out now. Debbie Matthews contributes to You Can't Kill the Spirit, a book covering the untold story of the women who set up camp to stop pit closures. And you can visit the Orgrieve Truth and Justice Campaign website for this one at otjc.org.uk You can find out more about Edwina Curry's time in office in her book Diaries 1987-92 to and Caroline Slowcock's time with Margaret Thatcher is documented in her book People Like Us, Me and Margaret Thatcher Jenny Reese writes more about women's experiences in the Metropolitan Police in her book Voices from the Blue and Jess Phillips's book Every Woman is also available now Standard Issue for all women.